And I've got an apartment, and I go back to my apartment, and propped against my door is one of those Hickory Farms boxes that you see only at Christmas. Somebody has sent the judge a cheese log or a sausage. I thought this was nice. So I'll go in, and I'll have a little sausage here, and I'll take answers off my answering machine. And I'm looking at this package, and I'm figuring out how to get it opened. And uh, I see where it's taped, and I cut the tape with the uh, key from my car, and I'm listening to answers on my answering machine. And I lift the lid of this box, and boom! <laughs> and I got blown back against the wall. And uh, a federal appellate judge in Birmingham, Alabama, had been killed in his home by an explosive device 10 days before that. Five days before that date, uh, a lawyer in Savannah, Georgia, had been killed by a bomb that had been sent to his office. And I could smell the gunpowder, and I knew that I had opened a bomb. There was a fire. I tried to put the fire out. I couldn't. I went out in the hallway. I pulled the fire alarm box. The neighbor came, said he had a fire extinguisher. I went back into my apartment, went back to where my phone was located, to call 911, and when I went to hit the, uh, the button on the phone, I became aware that part of my right hand had been blown away. And uh, they said, police, fire, rescue, and I said, I'd like to have one of each. And when I finished that conversation with them, I hung up the phone, and it felt like somebody was pulling my trousers off me. And I looked down on the, on the floor, and I was standing in a puddle of blood. It was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I looked at it, and uh, I knew I was in serious trouble. My neighbor came and asked if there was anything else he could do for me, and I said, uh, get me a towel. And I opened my trousers, and I put the towel where I thought the wound was. I did not have the courage to attempt to visualize it. I put my back against the wall, and I slid down on the floor, and, and it was real apparent to me that I was going to die on that floor that afternoon, and I could feel life draining out of me. And I was terribly afraid. And I was alone, and I was powerless, and I didn't know what to do. And I knew I was going to die on that floor and never see my wife or our children ever again. And the only tool that I had, which I had gained by going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, was the serenity prayer. And I asked God to grant me the serenity to accept this thing that I couldn't change, to give me the courage to change what I could and the wisdom to know the difference. And I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer. And I can't tell you whether it was the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth time through that prayer. It was answered, and God came. And I experienced a tremendous sense of peace and well-being, the likes of which I have never experienced before in my life nor have I experienced it since. And I had no idea whether I was going to live or die, but what I knew with great certainty was that if I died on that floor that afternoon, never to see my wife and our three children again, it was going to be all right. It was going to be all right. And the police, fire, and rescue people burst into my apartment, and both of my eardrums had been blown out, and they're talking, and I can't really hear them, but I tried to respond to them, and as soon as I stopped praying, this tremendous wave of fear swept upon me, and I told these guys, I said, do whatever you have to do. I'm going back to doing what I've been doing, and I went back to praying the serenity prayer, and as soon as I did, the serenity returned. 
Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast Episode 73. My name is Diane, and my son Michael is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. His sobriety date is October the 10th of the year 2000. The purpose of this show is to spread hope that recovery from alcohol and drug addiction is possible. I'm glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. This podcast's only mean of support are donations made by our listeners. All funds will be used to pay our monthly operating expenses. This is not a for-profit venture. I want to keep these episodes advertisement-free, so please help support us by visiting www.sobershares.com and clicking the PayPal Donate button. The process is secure and takes less than one minute to complete. Please email us your questions, comments, or show ideas to mike at sobershares.com. Now I'm going to turn it back over to my son, and thank you for listening to Sober Shares. Okay, Mom, and thank you for that. I love you. And now it's time to turn our attention to some people that made some financial donations to the Project Sober Shares to move this process forward. Thank you to Dina S., Kristen S., Peter O., Luis F., Linda L., Christopher F., Red S., K, L, Brendan G, and Colin H. Thank you for that. And now let's talk about some listener feedback we recently received for episode number 50, the Rock and Roller Stevie Ray Vaughan episode, episode 50 on Server Shares. So if you haven't gone back and listened to episode 50, I highly, highly recommend it. It is so much fun. Christina W. says, wow, what a wonderful podcast, a powerful story of redemption and hope. We also received feedback from Ron on this episode. He says, excellent work, Michael, and a wonderful, well-done podcast overall. I really enjoyed the music and his story. Thank you for making this show. Let's talk about some more listener feedback for the show. This one is from Miss Good 7 another Grateful 24. Love this podcast. So many nuggets of wisdom. I'm learning so much more about my allergy and am eternally grateful for servants like Michael that do the work carrying the message. Thank you for the show. Our next feedback is from Brendan G. He left this comment with a donation via our PayPal link on the SoberShares.com website. This is what he said. Mike, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and the difference I have noticed with yours is sharing, not telling. Our experience, strength, and hope is what I think is most helpful. I am 52 and have been sober since 2018. God bless you, and keep it up. Next, I want to talk about the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're more than just the nine-step promises. This next writing comes to us from Ellen W. She writes, Most meetings end with the promises. It would be easy to believe that those are the promises of the program. They are not. They are the promises of the nine-step only. I remember hearing them redundantly and feeling cheated. I missed a certain detail. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, what phase? The amends phase? Halfway through the eight-step list being amended, I can expect to start experiencing the things I read. Instead, I thought they meant halfway through the meeting and often felt like taking my dollar back. It turns out there are promises on more steps than not. Let's take a walk through the literature, and I'll touch on a few. The promises of step two. Here are a few examples. Page 46 from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We found that as soon as we lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, 
we commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. The next step to promise comes from page 46. Much to our relief, we discover we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with Him. The next step to promise comes from page 47. As soon as a man can say that he does believe, or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Step 2 Promise, page 55. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Step 3 Promises, page 63. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed. If we kept close to him and performed his work well, established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Page 63. Step 4 Promises from page 68. Just to the extent that we do what we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Step 4 Promises, page 70. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. Let's move to step 5. This one comes from page 75. Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we are beginning to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Step 9 promises. They can all be found on page 83 and 84. I'm not going to read those here on this podcast today because we're all probably quite familiar with them. If you are not, please read page 83 to 84. Let's move on to step 10. Page 84. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. We act sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. Let's move to page 85. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor we are afraid. This is our experience. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Let's move on to Step 11 Promise, page 87. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely on it. Let's move on to the Step 12 Promises, page 89. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. 
It works when other activities fail. Let's move on down the page, same page, 89, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch the loneliness vanish, and to see a fellowship grow up about you. To have a host of friends, this is a unique experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contacts with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Page 100. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Page 102. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. There are many more promises contained in the big book. These are just a few I wanted to highlight. If you have any questions about the promises and each step, talk to your sponsor or bring it up at your home group. Just as everyone has personal experiences with the steps, the same go for the promises. It's always an interesting discussion to have, and the more experience you have with them, the deeper your understanding. And now let's turn it over to Jack C. This talk was recorded in 2007. Take it away, Jack. My name is Jack, and I am an alcoholic. I am from Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, which is in western Maryland. I am a uh, member in good standing of the cleverly named Hagerstown Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our group is the third oldest group in the state of Maryland. I uh, claim no uh, responsibility for that. I, I stand on the shoulders of giants, people who were willing to carry the message and do the deal long before uh, I, uh, I knew that or was suspected I might be eligible for membership. As a member in good standing, I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. I sponsor people. I attend meetings of our group on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, which are, we do a big book, step, and open discussion. Our group is meeting this evening. And if I were in Hagerstown and you wanted to find me, that's where you would find me. I have a service position with my group. I have had a service position of one kind or another uh, since uh, almost since the time I joined there. And I'm the group's current GSR. So I think that makes me a member in good standing of my home group. I hope it does. We've already heard that uh, Geraldine and, and Snow is the co-chairs of this uh, function. I uh, have done a, a marvelous job. I want to thank Snow for inviting me. Uh, I think it's real important that you folks know who is responsible for inviting me. Uh, because if I say anything that offends you during the next two and a half hours that we're together, uh, then you take that up with Snow. And, uh, and of course, if I say anything that you agree with, uh, then me, be sure to say something to me about that because I, I really appreciate the attaboys. Uh, frequently at functions like this, uh, the uh, uh, folks I assembled are generally asked to uh, turn off their cell phones. And uh, if you're an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic, you don't like being told what to do. So uh, let's do this. 
If you're here this evening and you've got a cell phone, turn that puppy on. And um, <clears throat> but I would ask if you would put it uh, put it in your vibrate mode, and that way you'll be able to enjoy your incoming call and you won't disturb the rest of us. Uh, I think you all know this, but I, it's necessary. I think that it be said. Should uh, someone get a hold of the CD or the tape, I am not a spokesperson for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor am I an expert on Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just an alcoholic who was asked here to come and be with you to share my experience, strength, and hope, and I will try to do that. Uh, I may uh, share a little of my opinion, strength, and hope also, and uh, that just sometimes happens. Uh, I want to thank also Pedro. Pedro, where are you? There's Pedro. Okay. Pedro. Uh, Pedro uh, met Ann and I at the airport. Uh, he's really been really gracious and, and very accommodating. Uh, he told us that he has uh, picked up all the really good speakers you've all had in the past. Uh, he told me he, he always picked them up in Bentleys, but this year he came in a Suburban. Uh, he told me that you've always met in a really nice hotel over by the beach, and this year we're at a hotel next to the airport. And so I'm, I really appreciate Pedro's words of enthusiasm and encouragement. They really make me feel welcome, and uh, I'm going to call some of those other speakers just to verify what he said. Um, If I forget to say it while we're together here this evening, I think it's important that you know that I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard people say that they were grateful recovering alcoholics, and I just thought they were nuttier and fruitcakes. Uh, but not only am I a grateful recovering alcoholic, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the way of life that I've been given here. And uh, could, could we see the hands of the folks who are here tonight who are in their first six months of sobriety? Anybody here with six months? Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, no, but that explains why you're such a troublemaker, Raphael. That answers a lot of questions that I had. Uh, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where you are, you know. And uh, this is a safe place. There's nothing in Alcoholics Anonymous that'll hurt you. We know a lot about you. Uh, certainly one thing that we know, uh, in which I think uh, you may very easily confirm, we know that 2007 has been a lousy year uh, up until the time you got to Alcoholics Anonymous. We know what pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization feels like. Uh, we all travel different paths to get here, but the feelings are very much the same. And uh, if you find any of this uh, the least bit confusing, well, stick around. Because uh, out there, uh, we die. In here, we get a new way of life. We have an opportunity to be reborn. We get to live a second life in the same lifetime. And that is a gift that very few people 
ever have the opportunity to receive. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. Uh, that's not why I'm an alcoholic, but it is a fact uh, in, my, uh, in my background. My mother, who is 92 years old, uh, was married to my alcoholic father for 30 years before they got divorced, and uh, she knows what an alcoholic is. And um, I told my mom that uh, my wife and I were going to be out of town this weekend. And uh, she asked where we were going, and I told her uh, West Palm Beach. And she said, are you going for another one of those Alcoholics Anonymous things? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, well, you make sure you tell those people that you are not an alcoholic. <laughs> And I want to listen to my mom. <laughs> I want to believe my mom. And point of fact, uh, there are occasions when I think I've overreacted to this whole thing. <laughs> now, part of the reason that I am the least bit confused is because I don't have a lot of those things in my background that seem to have great cachet here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, for instance, I've never been to prison. I've never been to jail. I've never been locked up. I've never been arrested. Never had a DUI or DWI. Never had an alcohol-related offense. Um, never lost a job because of drinking. Uh, if, I, if I don't screw this thing up, Come August, just next month, my wife and I are going to be married 41 years. And uh, why don't you stand up, honey, so they can see that you're a real person. This is my wife, Ann. You'll probably want to give her a chip after this, uh, after this lead. Um, but, so I don't have any multiple marriages in my background. I don't have any illegitimate children in my background. In point of fact, I don't even have a good tattoo. <laughs> so you're probably beginning to wonder now why Snow invited me to come be with you tonight. So let's see if we can uh, qualify a little bit. Um, when I was... Uh, I guess I, I, I would, well, let me brief, tell you this. When I was in high school, I began to drink. Uh, drinking did for me what I suspect it did for you. It was indeed, as the big book uh, seems to indicate, the elixir of life. It was the answer to all of my problems. My world began to evolve around drinking as much as I could, as often as I could. Not that easy to do when you're 14, 15 years of age. But as frequently as I could, I did. And uh, I graduated from high school in Hagerstown. Uh, because it's a program of honesty, it's necessary that I tell you that it took me five years to get out of high school in Hagerstown. Uh, I would like to tell you it was because I wanted a solid academic foundation before I began my advanced educational degree. Uh, but the truth is that alcohol interfered with my drinking. I was asked to leave a couple different schools at periods of time, and that resulted in my having to spend five years in high school. 
Now, my ego requires me to tell you that I did go to community college and graduate in two years. So just when I was getting out of community college, my good friend Bill and I were planning a trip to California. I had quit my job as uh, working in a drugstore, and we had gotten 12 cases of beer, and we put them in the back of my car. We each packed an overnight bag. We had everything you needed to drive to California, and the night before we were to leave, Bill's father said he couldn't go. I was crushed. Yes, I was crushed. Uh, what, do you, what are you going to do if you've got 12 cases of beer in your car, you've quit your job, you've got a pocket full of money and an overnight bag, and you're ready to go somewhere? Well, as many of you know, uh, the state of Maryland has a little piece of our state that borders on the Atlantic Ocean. And there we have a resort community called Ocean City. And I drove down to Ocean City. And uh, I lived in Ocean City for a month. Uh, I lived there as a bum. That is, I didn't have a job. I lived in the basement of hotels where friends of mine worked. Uh, I didn't, uh, didn't buy any food there because I ate at restaurants, ate leftover food. Uh, that was given to me by waiters and waitresses that I knew, you know, uneaten crab cake, half a lobster tail. So I didn't have to pay for any room and I didn't have to pay for any board. I had my 12 cases of beer to drink. And then I had my pocket full of money to buy beer when those 12 cases were gone. So I was a, <clears throat> I was a, I enjoyed my time in Ocean City so much that I decided I wanted to work there the following summer. Now, I'm a keen observer of what goes on around me. And uh, I noticed it didn't make really make any difference. If you were a lifeguard or a beach boy or a waiter or a waitress, a hotel clerk, it doesn't make any difference. If you drank like I drank and you acted like I acted over the course of a summer, there was a really good chance that you'd end up getting arrested. And I did not want that to happen. I did notice, however, that there was a group of people working in Ocean City who were not getting arrested. And these were the members of the Ocean City Police Department. So the following year, I became an Ocean City policeman. I, uh, I was given a boardwalk uh, beat patrol within maybe uh, the first seven or ten days, it became apparent I have a, a really unique talent, uh, very good, very important for a guy like me. I could spot an underage, drink, underage drinker from 100 yards. And uh, I, would, I would encounter this uh, suspected underage drinker. I would establish, indeed, that they were underage. I would ask what they had in the cooler that they had with them. They would tell me that they had uh, some Coca-Cola. Uh, tuna fish and a loaf of bread. I would say, will you mind opening the top of the cooler? Not, no deed officer. They'd open the lid. There were the Coca-Colas and a nice neat row across the top. There was the tuna fish, the loaf of bread. But I would reach all the way down into the bottom of that cooler, and I'd come up with the Budweiser. And now your life, as you have known it, is over. <laughs> I understand that you think that you're going to college, but you're not. You're going to jail. And once they find out that you've gone to jail, you're not going to college. 
Oh, a military career is out of the question. They don't want people coming out of jail to go in the military. So you are toast in that regard. I'm going to call your parents at 3 a.m. back in Baltimore, and I'm going to tell them that I have locked you up and that they got to come down to bail you out. You want to offer some alternative to that. What, what did you have in mind? <laughs> Confiscate the beer? Well, it's certainly worthy of discussion. But if I confiscate the beer, I'm going to have to take the cooler. And if I take the cooler, I'm going to have to take the Coca-Cola and the tuna fish. That's okay with you? Okay, I'm going to write your name right here in my official Ocean City Police log. And I want your word that you are never, ever going to do this again in Ocean City, Maryland. You promise me? Okay, you're free to go. Now, it's really hard to walk a beat when you're dragging a cooler full of beer around behind you. So I had to work out a deal with my sergeant and my lieutenant that uh, they would come with their squad car and they would pick up the coolers as I accumulated them. And I, in turn, would give them the whiskey or the wine. I wasn't drinking whiskey or wine then, so it seemed like a good deal to me. And so... We had a great summer that summer. Um, I, uh, I drank every day. Uh, I never bought anything to drink the entire summer. Uh, and I didn't get arrested. That's the definite, my definition of a good summer. If, uh, if you'd have come to Ocean City and were in need of a cooler, I'm your guy. And there was a no return policy. If you wanted to bring it back, you could, but I really didn't need it. I had a whole porch full of coolers, so you're <laughs> welcome to it. I had such a good time that summer that uh, I decided to go back for a second summer. And uh, the second summer I went back, they gave me a squad car. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> It was one of those big old Ford Crown Victorias. And I don't know if you remember the trunks in those babies, but you could get like three bodies or four or five coolers in there. And so I set out to patrol up and down the beach highway. I collected my coolers as I went. Same deal with my lieutenant and sergeant. I'd just meet them at the end of the shift. I'd give them the whiskey and the wine, and I'd keep the beer and the coolers. Had a great summer that summer. Drank every day, didn't buy anything to drink all summer, did not get arrested. This is working good. Uh, I'm going to put my watch up here, not because I can see it or necessarily pay attention to it, but I just think it gives hope to the newcomer. Uh, I, um, I was, uh, I had such a good summer that I went back for a third summer. Now, what I'm about to share with you is something that happened that summer that really changed the course of my life. And now let's pause for a few announcements. Please remember to visit SoberShares.com to listen to all of our episodes, leave us a show review, and access our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please email me directly at Mike at SoberShares.com. A financial donation to this show may be made by clicking the PayPal Donate button on our website. This donation process is simple and your generosity will allow us to continue to bring you the show advertisement-free. Your generosity will help us meet our monthly operating expenses. Thank you in advance for your consideration. And now, let's return to Jack C. I was patrolling the beach highway at 3 o'clock in the morning. I pulled over a guy who was obviously driving drunk. 
I got him out of the car, established that he was drunk. I was writing up his uh, ticket. Uh, he said to me, he said, officer, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, I am the state's attorney for Worcester County, the county you're standing in right now. Well, I'm a college kid. I don't know what a state's attorney is. I don't know what a state's attorney does. I'd never heard of a state's attorney before. So I said, well, good for you. Sign the ticket. <laughs> and uh, he signed the ticket. There was a fellow there who seemed to be sober. I allowed him to, uh, to drive the vehicle away, and I went about my rest of my shift. At 8 o'clock that morning, I pulled into uh, the parking lot of the police department. There standing in the parking lot was the chief of police. Uh, he said to me, uh, Quarterman, he said, come up to my office and bring that uniform citation book with you. Oh, these were the first words that the chief had spoken to me all summer. I thought I was going to get recognition for a job well done, long overdue recognition, I might add. So I got that ticket book and I went up to his office. Now, when I walked into his office, there seated right inside the door on the couch, right next to Bill and Bob, was the guy I gave the ticket to at 3 o'clock in the morning. The chief said, uh, give me that ticket book. I gave him the ticket book. He opened it to the ticket. He handed it to the guy sitting on the couch. The guy takes out a pen and writes across the face of that ticket, case dismissed, and signs his name. Well, it was at that moment that I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> and if I could be one of those state's attorneys, I definitely wanted to be one of them, because if you drank and drove like I drank and drove, the ability to dismiss traffic charges with a stroke of a pen was going to come in mighty handy. So I went to law school. <clears throat> now, I got out of law school. I went back to my hometown of Hagerstown, practicing law for a little while there when I became aware that there was a vacancy for an assistant state's attorney in our community. So I went right over, knocked on the door, said, here I am, answer to your prayers. When do you want me to start? Now, what I'm about to share with you is what I think I heard them say. <laughs> and the reason I, reason I say that is because there are many things that have happened in my life, things that I thought had been said have never been said. Many things that I thought had happened have never happened. My sister, who's younger than I am, has shared with me on a number of occasions when I have told her about these things that I heard or things that I saw, she said, Jack, I was there. It didn't happen. They didn't say that. So this is what I thought I heard them say. What? Are you some kind of an idiot? You just got out of law school. You don't know anything. You've never done anything. You've never been in a courtroom. You've never tried a case. You've never sworn in a jury. You've never cross-examined anybody. Get out of the office. Now, that's what I thought I heard them say. Now, since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, it has occurred to me that in all likelihood, what they said was, the position has been filled. But I heard what I heard, and I left there, and I, had, I was offended. I was angry. I was hurt. Uh, and I'm not a very, I'm a very sensitive person and I don't suffer well. 
And I now know that I left there with a resentment. And you know an alcoholic with a resentment can do quite a bit. And I assume that uh, very much uh, that you elect your state's attorneys or district attorneys here like we elect ours back home. So I went and found a lawyer who wanted to be state's attorney. I ran his campaign for state's attorney. He got elected state's attorney, and he made me deputy state's attorney. <laughs> so no sooner did I get into that office, and I, I became aware of a very serious deficiency. We had no badges, and there's no point in being a state's attorney if you don't have a badge, because with the badge comes a badge case, and in that badge case, there's this clear glassine place where you put your driver's license. So when they stop you and they ask you for your license and registration, you open up the badge case and show it to them. They don't care what your driver's license is. They want to know about that badge. Oh, the badge officer, deputy state's attorney, Washington County. <laughs> Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm terrible. You know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. No, I only have a few more miles to go. Yeah, I can hold it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll be careful. Yeah. Well, officer, I certainly appreciate this professional courtesy, and you have a nice night also. Would you? Thank you so much. Now, some of you may be getting some insight into why I've never been arrested, but uh, it gets better. Um, I'm working in the state's attorney's office. We have two circuit court judges in our community, and one of them is retiring, and the governor's going to appoint my boss, going to appoint the state's attorney, circuit court judge, which means I'm going to get appointed state's attorney. So, okay. Now, I don't know about here in Florida, but back home from time to time, here and there, now and then, the state senator sticks his nose in where it doesn't belong, everything gets screwed up. And that's what happened in this case. My guy didn't get appointed circuit court judge. And I was angered about that. Um, not really angry about him not getting to be circuit court judge, but I was really upset that I didn't get to be state's attorney. Now, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. And so... <laughs> One evening, while sitting around with a couple of like-minded individuals having a few adult beverages, it was determined that somebody ought to run against that state senator, teach him a lesson. So I ran for the state senate. I didn't know that the state senator was going to run off with the secretary from the Appropriations Committee and abandon his wife and children and run away and move to Florida, but he did. He lives over in Sarasota. And uh, I got elected state senator. <laughs> now, when you get elected state senator in the state of Maryland, they give you a license plate. And that license plate says on it, state senator. <laughs> now, this is an aid to efficient law enforcement. And by that I mean when they come up behind you on that interstate and they got those overheads going and they get close enough that they can read that license plate, they turn out those overheads, and they come up alongside of you, and they turn on that interior dome light, and they toot. Toot-toot! Hi, Senator. Hi, Trooper. Hold it down, Senator. Okay, Trooper. And that way, you don't have a lot of state police tied up alongside of the highway with members of the General Assembly when they could be out arresting real crooks. So...
I'd like to tell you a little bit about my legislative career in Annapolis, but we have a group of people in Annapolis, probably very much like you all do here in Tallahassee, that their sole responsibility is to make sure that any member of the General Assembly, be they member of the House of Delegates or the State Senate, can have something to drink by way of an alcoholic beverage any time of the day or night 24-7. These people are called lobbyists. <laughs> I had a lot of lobbyist friends. Um, so anything I might say to you about my legislative career would be nothing but rumor and hearsay, and I don't like to engage in such gossip. Uh, needless to say, that guy who got appointed circuit court judge didn't like being circuit court judge and he resigned. So I went over to the governor and I said, Governor, I'm now the state senator. I'd like you to appoint my friend, the state's attorney, circuit court judge. And he said to me, Senator, when that appointment was last up in Washington County, there was so much adverse and negative publicity surrounding the events that I will never consider appointing your guy circuit court judge. However, if you would like to be the circuit court judge, <laughs> I'll appoint you. And like I said, we only have two of them in my community. It's a 15-year term, so I became a circuit court judge. <clears throat> Frightening, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I, uh, to show you what, what I, I tried to do to help the Bar Association while I was a circuit court judge, uh, they were having this continuing legal education program on the prosecution and defense of drunk driving. And uh, it was going to be a two-hour program, and the prosecutors were going to put on this test. You know, they were going to present what their goals and objectives are, and the public defender's defense bar were going to put on what their goals and objectives were. And Sergeant Long was there with his breathalyzer, and they needed a volunteer. Uh, to drink the beer. And um, somebody who was fair, somebody who was impartial, unbiased, fair-minded. So I volunteered. And they brought out this tray that had six cans of beer all iced down. I said to the guy, I said, what's that? He said, that's the beer for tonight's program. I said, you do realize that this is a two-hour program and you've only brought six beers. And he said, well, we have more beer in the back. I said, ice it down and bring it out because I'm not going to drink any, any warm beer here. And so, you know, they, they, they started the program and, and I drank some beer and blew into the breathalyzer. And, you know, you start out 0.05 and then it bumped up to a 0.09 and then a 0.13 and then a 0.19 and... Then we got up to 0.23 and 0.27, and then we got to 0.30 and then 0.33. And then at the 0.33 level, they called upon me to put on my part of the program, and which I'm told was pretty good under the circumstances. And, and so after the program was over, uh, I said to the chairman of the program, I said, who's going to drive me home? And he said, what do you mean? I said, I just blew a 0.33 and Sergeant Long's breathalyzer I can't go out and get in my car. He said, oh, we never thought about that. So I said, well, I tell you what, I'll go into the hotel bar and have a couple drinks when you come in and get me when Sergeant Long has gone home. And so I went into the bar and I had a few drinks and they came and told me when he was gone. 
I left the hotel, I went down to the Broad Axe, I had three or four drinks down there, and then I went over to the cellar door, had two or three drinks over there, and then I went home. And it was just an evening of social drinking for the judge. And uh, now, I, uh, I love drinking. I loved everything about drinking. I certainly love the effect of drinking. Uh, but I like the ambiance of drinking. I like the neon lights. I, I like the, the smell of stale beer and urine. I like peanut shells on the floor. I like the stemware. I like the little short highball glasses, the, those Pilsner glasses that you have. I, I love the Tom Collins glasses, the martini stemware. I loved it all. Loved all about it. But if, if you were to shove a brown paper bag at me and you said, here, Jack, take a pull on this, I would not ask you what this is. There's no point in asking you what it is. You wouldn't have offered it to me if it wasn't good. So I would just take it. <coughs> good stuff. That's good stuff. And you know how sometimes when you have people over for a little barbecue cookout or poker night or whatever, a social occasion there at the house of the apartment, and then later you're cleaning up and uh, you know you're picking up the cans and oh this one's got a little something in it and <coughs> oh what was that? Yeah, you're right, cigarette butt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some cigarette butt drinkers in here. I I know you. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So I, um, I, my drink of choice, my favorite beverage, alcohol, was Jack Daniel's Black Label on crushed ice with a twist. That was that was to die for. I, I loved Black Jack on crushed ice with a twist. But I also had a love affair with the gin martini. I'll admit that. Uh, particularly, I enjoyed those really big olives that you only get in a big gin martini. But I also have to acknowledge I had a bad gin experience. And even to this day, it's hard for me to go into a pine forest. It's just <laughs> the way it is. Um, so what I'm about to tell you, a lawyer and I were going out uh, well, the stated purpose, so we told my wife we were going out to have dinner. But he and I knew we were just going out to get drunk. You know, sometimes you just, you know, you get struck drunk by accident. But this wasn't one of those occasions. We were going out to get deliberately drunk. We were going to get knee-walking, snot-flying drunk. That was the purpose, and we did. We had a terrific evening. Um, we ended up at... Um, at a local watering hole, uh, frequented by most, if not all, of the recently separated, divorced, and single women in our community. Uh, we stopped by to just have a nightcap. And had I known that um, this was going to be my last drink of beverage alcohol, I, I want to assure you I would have ordered something else. Uh, and, and definitely, if I knew that I was going to be invited to come here to West Palm Beach to be with you all to talk about my last drink, I want you to know, without hesitation or reservation, I would have ordered something else. 
It is with some degree of embarrassment, quite frankly, <laughs> and shame that I am forced to report to you that my last drink of beverage alcohol was Tia Maria. <laughs> oh yeah, you think that's funny, huh, Snow? Yeah. Uh, Now, in my own defense, I know there are people in here who are saying, what? What did he say? What's Tia Maria? If you are thinking about going for a relapse, do not go for Tia Maria. Trust me on that one. In my own defense, I'm pretty sure it came out of a tainted bottle. And the reason I say that is because driving home that evening, I threw up. And that's not part of my drinking experience. I mean... Part of my drinking experience would be more along the lines of I'm down at the broad axe and I'm playing shuffleboard or shooting pool. It gets to be 11, uh, 12 o'clock at night. I'm getting a little bit full. I go out back behind a dumpster. I throw up. I come back in. I continue to drink and shoot pool. That kind of throwing up is part of drinking. I understand that. Or if you go out and have a really big Friday night and find yourself on your knees hugging that porcelain altar that many of us have in our homes, calling Ralph one more time, I understand that. That is part of drinking. That's part of the price I was willing to pay for a good time. Parenthetically, have any of you encountered anything quite like the feeling of cool porcelain against a fevered brow on a hangover morning. I'm telling you, that's to die for. That's, so uh, I threw up on the way home, and that's, I'm sure it was a tainted bottle. Uh, my wife is a school teacher. She teaches elementary school. Uh, I suspect that right here, like uh, in, in uh, Hagerstown, our elementary school children are just uh, uh, just germ-infested. And the teacher brings home the germs from the school, and then the spouse or the family of the teacher gets sick. And I got up the next morning, and I had flu. I couldn't believe it. But I went to work. And we go to work if we can. And... Uh, Got home that night, still had flu. Friday was Good Friday, so I didn't have to work. And uh, I, had, um, I had the upset stomach that frequently comes along with flu. And so I was indeed kneeling before that porcelain altar most of that day. By Saturday, I developed that lower tract distress that frequently comes with flu. And if you've got that lower tract distress combined with that upset stomach thing, that'll hone your decision-making down to a really fine edge because you don't know whether to sit or kneel or kneel or sit. And at some point over that weekend, I made the wrong decision. Now, if you want to discuss that further, you can talk to my wife about it. But I'm going to go on and to tell you that by Sunday, Sunday was Easter Sunday, and, and I was getting pretty weak and pretty dehydrated from all of that kneeling and sitting that I'd been doing over the weekend. So by Monday, they put me in the hospital uh, in order to hydrate me. And uh, Monday night, my abdomen became distended, and they had to do an emergency laparotomy on me, and they opened me up, and they found my abdomen full of gangrene, peritonitis. And while they were in there trying to clean that up, uh, 
my kidneys quit and my liver was enlarged and liver function was out of whack. My pancreas was digesting itself and my respiratory system quit. And uh, things just weren't looking good for the home team. <laughs> I was the uh, youngest circuit court judge in the state of Maryland. And I was, uh, we in a small town, we got a newspaper and, you know, judge uh, hospitalized for flu and then paper judge condition worsens and then judge placed on critical list. And it was pretty clear I was becoming a public relations nightmare. So they made the decision to send me down to Johns Hopkins. Now they told my wife that they were sending me down to Johns Hopkins to die, that they'd done everything that they could possibly do for me. They didn't think Hopkins could do anything, but if anybody could do anything, it would be Hopkins. And so they were sending me down there, uh, but not to expect me to come back alive. I'm glad they didn't tell me that because I would have been discouraged. Uh, <laughs> I had, uh, I knew people had gone to the Washington County Hospital and they had died. And I knew people had gone to Johns Hopkins and they'd lived. So I was, you know, I was happy to go to Hopkins. And I went down to Hopkins, and for two weeks, they did just about everything but hang me by my thumbs. And finally, uh, my, my belly button birthday is on May the 14th, and on the night of May 13th, these learned physicians came in to see me, and before they could get a word out of their mouths, I told them that, you know, I can't take it anymore. Uh, I was off the respirator then, I can't take it anymore, and... Uh, Tomorrow's my birthday, and you just got to give me a day of rest. And they said, well, Judge, that's why we're here. We don't know what else to do for you. We've done everything we know. We presented you the internal medicine department. They can't even get a majority vote on what's wrong with you. And so we're going to give you a day of rest tomorrow. And I celebrated my 40th birthday in Johns Hopkins Hospital on May the 14th. Two weeks later, on May the 28th, I walked out of Johns Hopkins Hospital. My kidney function returned. Uh, my pancreas stopped digesting itself. Uh, my liver enzymes uh, were getting back into normal ranges. And um, when you spend seven weeks in a hospital like that, they like to have a little discharge meeting with you before you're uh, released to give you the do's and don'ts, you know. Uh, but when you've got an undiagnosed illness, uh, they don't know what really to tell you. And these guys told me, they said, Judge, uh, we just suggest you don't get it again because it's likely to kill you. And well, okay, and so I'm, I'm getting up out of my chair and almost out the door when one of these doctors said, can we ask you one more question? And I said, what's that? They said, do you drink? <laughs> huh? What? Do you drink? Well, I'm a lawyer. I mean, well, I'm a judge now, but I used to be a lawyer. And when I was a lawyer, I had to drink with other lawyers. I had to drink with clients. I had to drink with judges. Now I'm a judge. I still drink with lawyers, and I have to drink with other judges. So, yes, it's a professional obligation. Yeah, I drink. <laughs> How much do you drink? Not very much. Why do you ask? Well, he said, Judge, you know, uh, your kidney function's returned, and there's nothing that damages kidneys like alcohol. And uh, we just like you to give your kidneys a rest. And your liver function is coming back, and uh, there's nothing that hurts a liver like alcohol. And, uh, and then, of course, there's your pancreas. And alcohol just does a number on the pancreas. 
and you've got these three very sensitive and vital organs involved, we'd just like you to not drink for a while. How long? <laughs> a year. A year. Now, let's see. My last drink was on April 7th. This is May 28th. Um, okay, I think I can do that. They said, no, Judge, you don't understand. This is Memorial Day weekend. We want you to not drink from June the 1st. Now, I think there are people in this room who have already discerned the injustice that these doctors were trying to perpetuate <laughs> upon me, and that is I was getting no credit for my seven weeks of continuous sobriety. <laughs> and I want you to know that I fought for those seven weeks, and we entered into a compromise, and the compromise was that I would not drink until April the 7th of the following year, and then... If I thought drinking had anything to do with the pain and suffering and misery that I had just endured, then I would not drink until June the 1st. And under those conditions, I was released from Johns Hopkins Hospital to go out into the world not drinking. And I entered into the most insane period of my life. <laughs> not drinking and not changing. Now let me say, when I talk to people who are not alcoholic, and I explain to them how hard I fought for those seven weeks of sobriety, they don't laugh. They look at me like I am crazy. <laughs> and of course, I am crazy. That's one of the reasons Snow invited me here. I'm crazy. But this calls into judgment your sanity, because you're sitting here listening to me. <laughs> but I digress. Not drinking, not changing. No drinking, no changing. Kind of like don't drink and go to meetings. Kind of like don't drink and go to meetings. Uh, if you're doing that, you know, people are dying because they don't drink and go to meetings. Uh, we read how it works here earlier. I mean, it works. It says in the big book, for the alcoholic who doesn't drink, his life becomes very restless, irritable, and discontent. And that, that's an understatement in my case. I was pissed off in a spring-loaded position is what I was. <laughs> life became just unbearable not drinking and not changing. I'm dying of untreated alcoholism. I'm not drinking and with the passage of every day and every week and every month and every year, it was clear evidence to me that I am not alcoholic because alcoholics drink. Ergo, I am not alcoholic. I might be just a little bit touchy, a little bit bristly. I might be a little bit short-tempered, but if you just leave me the hell alone and mind your own damn business, everything is fine with me, okay? I'm fine. Fine. How would you like to have appeared before me during my not drinking and not changing? So, two guys 
In Hagerstown, Bob and Ken, active members of Alcoholics Anonymous, are watching me die of untreated alcoholism. And let me go back and say that my dad, uh, my dad on uh, July the 3rd, 1968, went past a Methodist church in our town and the pastor put out on the message board, don't buy a fifth on the third for the fourth. My dad went to Alcoholics Anonymous that night and never drank again. And he died with 15 years of continuous sobriety in this wonderful program. And I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous, if for nothing else, for that and that alone. And my dad lost everything. He lost his 30-year marriage to uh, my mother. Uh, he lost uh, the respect of his son, me. Uh, my sister, uh, when she got married, she didn't invite him to the wedding. He wasn't allowed to give her away. I gave her away. She was afraid he would show up and he would show up drunk. He came to the wedding anyway, and he showed up drunk. Uh, he lost a business that he had spent most of his adult life building in our community. And he lost it all because of drinking. And what Alcoholics Anonymous gave back to him were those things which are priceless, not the material things, but the stuff that's priceless. His dignity, his self-respect, uh, he had a wonderful, wonderful life in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he died with 15 years of con continuous sobriety, and I'm very appreciative of that. And I try, by doing this in some small way, to, to pay, pay back this enormous debt, which I, I believe I owe, in that I hope in some small way that my dad knows uh, that uh, his sobriety was very much appreciated by all of us. Who, uh, who loved him. <sighs> Bob uh, knew my dad had uh, been in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he came to me one day and he said, Jack, he said, we have this book in AA, it's called The Big Book, and uh, uh, we, I was thinking maybe you'd like to read it and learn about your father's disease. <laughs> <laughs> Clever guy, that Bob. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I think if he had come to me, I think you know, if he had come and said, Jack, here's this book, I think you ought to read it to find out what's wrong with you, I would have never read it, because there is nothing wrong with me. You understand that. And, uh, but I did read the book. I was interested in finding out about my father's disease, and not surprising to me, my father's in there. Uh, he's, a, he's a real alcoholic, as defined by the big book, and so I wasn't surprised to find him in there. But what I was surprised to find, and I think what Bill or what Bob and, and Ken were counting on, is I was in there. I saw myself in that book. And I was, I was having read the book, I was willing to concede that there was a possibility that maybe, just maybe, I had contracted a very mild case of alcoholism, which we had caught just in time. Uh, but that was, all, that was all Bob and Ken needed, because they began to come to my judge's chambers every Friday. That's, that's my office. They would come every Friday, bring their big books and a brown bag lunch, and we would sit at my conference table I had a big book, they had their big books, and uh, we would read the big book, and they would explain to me the importance of what we had read, and then I would explain to them as Jack sees it. And, um, 
as you might expect, we had some very interesting intellectual conversations. And uh, because, after all, as I've already explained to you, and I explained to Ken and to Bob, I may have spent five years in high school, but I did get out of the community college in two years. I got a bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland in two more years. And I graduated from the University of Maryland School of Law with honors. And I think it's important that you understand that. And Ken explained to me that we have degrees on rectal thermometers. And you know what we do with those, Jack. <laughs> now, I thought that was a little harsh, particularly because uh, he was a lawyer and he was in my office. But um, I've heard that statement frequently around Alcoholics Anonymous since I've been here. But that was the first time I'd ever heard it. And I just thought it was a little, uh, a little chancy to say that to the judge in his chambers. But Ken loved me enough to risk, to risk offending me. Because my feelings have been hurt before. And he knew I'd get over that. But what he knew that I didn't know is I was dying of a chronic progressive disease. And if it wasn't, something wasn't done, then I was doomed. They wanted me to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I refused to go in Hagerstown because AA in Hagerstown was having a tremendous growth spurt. Membership drive under my leadership was going very well. <laughs> As circuit court judge, I knew exactly what to do with alcoholics when they came before me, and so the rooms were filling up. And uh, I wasn't about to go to meetings with those people. So I would go up to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, over to Frederick, Maryland, or down to Martinsburg, West Virginia, and I would go late, and, uh, and I would leave early. And, uh, but as some of you know, uh, most uh, many meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous don't start on time, and so I'd get there thinking I was late. And I get there just in time for the serenity prayer. So, uh, but I could tell when the meeting was about to end, and I bristled with antagonism towards things of God, and so I would leave uh, before the meeting ended. So, uh, on December 22nd, 1989, it was a Friday before Christmas. The courthouse was closed, so we couldn't have our meeting at the courthouse. So, Bob and Ken and I went out to lunch. Uh, my wife and I were separated. I should say that um, during the time that I was drinking, my wife and I were separated on three separate occasions. Uh, there were women involved on each of those occasions. Uh, after I stopped drinking, uh, we were separated on three separate occasions. There were women involved on all three of those occasions. And I think uh, that's pretty clear evidence that drinking had nothing to do with any of those separations. Uh, but alcoholism had everything to do with all six of those separations, and neither I nor she knew that. Uh, so I'm separated. Uh, and I've got an apartment, and I go back to my apartment, and propped against my door is one of those Hickory Farms boxes that you see only at Christmas. Somebody has sent the judge a cheese log or a sausage. I thought this was nice. So I'll go in and I'll have a little sausage here and I'll take answers off my answering machine. And I'm looking at this package and I'm figuring out how to get it opened. And I, I see where it's taped and I cut the tape with the uh, key from my car and I'm listening to answers on my answering machine. And I lift the lid of this box and boom!
and I got blown back against the wall. And uh, a federal appellate judge in Birmingham, Alabama had been killed in his home by an explosive device 10 days before that. Five days before that date, uh, a lawyer in Savannah, Georgia had been killed by a bomb that had been sent to his office. And I could smell the gunpowder and I knew that I had opened a bomb. There was a fire. I tried to put the fire out, I couldn't. I went out in the hallway, I pulled the fire alarm box, the neighbor came, said he had a fire extinguisher. I went back into my apartment, went back to where my phone was located to call 911, and when I went to hit the, uh, the button on the phone, I became aware that part of my right hand had been blown away. And uh, they said, police, fire, rescue, and I said, I'd like to have one of each, and when I finished that conversation with them, I hung up the phone and it felt like somebody was pulling my trousers off me and I looked down on the, on the floor and I was standing in a puddle of blood and it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I looked at it and uh, I knew I was in serious trouble. My neighbor came and asked if there was anything else he could do for me and I said, uh, get me a towel and I opened my trousers and I put the towel where I thought the wound was. I did not have the courage to attempt to visualize it. I put my back against the wall and I slid down on the floor and, and it was real apparent to me that I was going to die on that floor that afternoon and I could feel life draining out of me. And I was terribly afraid. And I was alone. And I was powerless. And I didn't know what to do. And I knew I was going to die on that floor and never see my wife or our children ever again. And the only tool that I had, which I had gained by going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, was the serenity prayer. And I asked God to grant me the serenity to accept this thing that I couldn't change, to give me the courage to change what I could and the wisdom to know the difference. And I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer, and I prayed that prayer. And I can't tell you whether it was the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth time through that prayer. It was answered. And God came. And I experienced a tremendous sense of peace and well-being, the likes of which I have never experienced before in my life, nor have I experienced it since. And I had no idea whether I was going to live or die. But what I knew with great certainty was that if I died on that floor that afternoon, never to see my wife and our three children again, it was going to be all right. It was going to be all right. And the police, fire, and rescue people burst into my apartment, and both of my eardrums had been blown out, and they're talking, and I can't really hear them. But I tried to respond to them, and as soon as I stopped praying, this tremendous wave of fear swept upon me, and I told these guys, I said, do whatever you have to do. I'm going back to doing what I've been doing, and I went back to praying the serenity prayer, and as soon as I did, the serenity returned. And they cut all my clothes off of me, except for my red and green Christmas socks, and they put me on a gurney, and they took me down three flights of steps, and our local television station was Johnny on the spot and they stuffed me into this ambulance head first with my feet sticking out and my red and green Christmas socks went around the world on CNN that night. And they took me over to the hospital and they prepared me for surgery and they couldn't find my wife and they couldn't find my girlfriend. But they did find my sponsor, Ken, and they allowed Ken to come back while I was being prepared for surgery and he held my hand and he up. Uh, 
She prayed for me. And we prayed together. And they took me up to surgery. And uh, I don't know how shrapnel knows to stop passing through flesh, but I can tell you that they removed a significantly large piece of shrapnel, not resting against, but in close proximity to my femoral artery. And I think we all know that if my femoral artery would have been nicked, you'd have a different speaker here tonight. And they sent me up to a recovery room. And the next day when I, when I came to, my sponsor Bob was uh, sitting at the foot of the bed. And uh, Bob, uh, Bob was smiling. And uh, let me say that it's good to have a sponsor. It's real important to have a sponsor. I mean, if you're here tonight and you don't have a sponsor, I mean, if you're new, please, by all means, get a sponsor. And if you've been here for a while and you don't have a sponsor and you're doing the I sponsor myself thing, stop it. You got an idiot for a sponsor. Uh, get a sponsor. Because sponsors see things differently. They got a different take on things. And I see Bob smiling. I said, Bob, I see you're smiling. He said, well, I said, what are you smiling about? He said, nothing much, Jack. He said, I just think it must be wonderful to know that you can't be harmed. I said, harm, Bob? I said, somebody just tried to kill me. He said, yeah, I know, Jack. He says, I understand that package you opened contained four pipe bombs. He says, one pipe bomb is more than adequate to kill a human being. Two pipe bombs is kind of redundant. Three pipe bombs around the bend. Four pipe bombs, Jack? You have really made somebody very angry. <laughs> he said, I just think it must be wonderful to know. I mean, man has done his very best to try and kill you. And the only explanation of your survival is the grace of God. It must be wonderful to know that you can't be harmed. It's good to have a sponsor. I wouldn't have come up with that in a million years. <laughs> he said, God has spared your life, Jack. God has work for you. I said, really? Really, Bob? What kind of work does God have for me? He said, well, Jack, I don't know. I wouldn't presume to know God's will for you in that instance. But I do know, with great deal of certainty, that it's God's will for you to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that means you're going to have to pray that third step prayer with either Ken or I. You're going to have to do that four step inventory. You're going to have to do a fifth step with either me or with Ken. You're going to have to do the sixth step and the seventh step. And then you're going to have to make that eighth step list and begin making those ninth step amends so you can live successfully in 10, 11, and 12 and equip yourself to be of maximum service to God and to your fellow man. Good to have a sponsor. I wouldn't have come up with that either. Um, I was discharged from the hospital on Christmas Day, 1989. It was the best Christmas I'd ever had in my life. Uh, exceeded by every Christmas thereafter. The following Christmas, December of 1990, my wife and I reconciled and she and I have been together ever since. And I think I can say without uh, hesitation or reservation or fear of contradiction, that our life together today is better than it's ever been. And for that, we owe a great deal of gratitude and debt to a loving and gracious, caring, forgiving God who is all-powerful. In the big book, it says the power of God goes deep. And the big book says broken relationships are healed 
we are restored, we're reborn here. So, um, okay, I'm out of the hospital. I got to start to take action on this program. I mean, I'm one of those guys whose favorite chapter in the big book is into thinking. I'm really big on that book, that chapter, into thinking. And of course, there's no chapter into thinking. It's into action. But I'm a thinker. And in the big book, it says the problem for the alcoholic centers in the mind. I don't know about your mind. All I do is thinking in my mind. Think, 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 think. Simply how I think is my problem. S-H-I-T. Simply how I think is my problem. I am not good at it. I shouldn't be allowed to ever try to do it on my own without supervision. I need a sponsor. I need a sponsor to this very day because I have an alcoholic mind and nowhere in that book does it say that I am relieved of my alcoholic mind. I understand today that I'm not responsible for my thinking, but what I am responsible is for my action based on that thinking. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is an opportunity to put a wedge of time in between my thinking and my action. I used to be a fast-thinking, fast-acting alcoholic. And now, when the thoughts come, stop it, Jack. You're an alcoholic for crying out loud. And as long as I can laugh at myself, I will never lack for amusement. And let me tell you, I'm one of the most amusing people I have ever met in my life. Unbelievable stuff. I told Ann, I said, I said, you're never going to believe this, honey, but I got a right foot, I got a shoe here on my right foot that doesn't match the shoe here on my left foot. I don't know how that happened. You know, you hadn't noticed that, had you? Nobody notices stuff like that, but you know, I used to be so self-conscious that I absolutely had to have the, I mean, you just don't go out wearing one right shoe and some other pair of shoes. You don't do that. I flew all the way down here, believe it or not. Unbelievable. And then I told you about it. Well, thinking, I'm not good at it. I'm just not good at thinking. Uh, we got this pamphlet of this AA for you, and with a little literary license, I've kind of got some questions here, like, have you ever decided to stop thinking for a week or so and only lasted for a couple days? Do you wish people would mind their own business about your thinking and stop telling you what to do? Do you envy people who can think without getting into trouble? Have you ever had problems connected with your thinking during the past year? Has your thinking caused trouble at home? <laughs> Do you tell yourself that you can stop thinking anytime you want to, even though you keep thinking when you don't mean to? <laughs> Have you missed days of work or school because of your thinking? Have you ever felt that your life would be better if you just didn't think? I'm not good at thinking. Thinking is not good for me. It's not good for me. Good to have a sponsor. Very good to have a sponsor. Ken and, Ken and Bob came to my office week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, because they knew something I didn't know. And they also knew that if I knew that they knew something that I didn't know, my very knowing that they knew something that I didn't know, that I didn't know what it was that they knew that I didn't know, that knowing that would make me angry. But they came anyway. They came anyway to carry the message of hope for Alcoholics Anonymous because they knew that I didn't know what it was that they knew that I didn't know, but at some point I would know what it was that they didn't know. And when I knew that thing that they knew that I didn't know, that when I came to know it, it would no longer make me angry because then I would know what they knew that I didn't know and I wouldn't be upset by that. <laughs>
Now, if you followed any of that, you're in the right place. If you found any of it to be the least bit confusing, you're still in the right place. It just means you don't know. In Alcoholics Anonymous, you know when you know that you know and not a moment before. And that's why we keep talking about don't quit before the miracle. Don't get up and walk out of AA meetings just because you feel like it. This is the place that's designed to make me uncomfortable. The steps of recovery are designed to make me do things I would not ordinarily do. Ken told me, Jack, if you want something you've never had, you're going to have to do stuff that you've never done. You keep doing the things that you've always done, you're going to keep getting the same old crap that you've always gotten. If you want something, you're going to have to do something. There's going to be some sweat equity involved in this. You're actually going to have to do something. Before I got to active in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had what I'd like to call cake mix sobriety. And if we went over here to the Publix and got ourselves a box of that Duncan Hines red velvet cake mix, and we had it up here at this podium, I can assure you on the back of that box, Duncan Hines has a three-step program for the production of a red velvet cake. I could read that back of that box to you. Or I could give it to Harry to read out loud to the assembled multitude. Or we could pass it around and read it out loud to all of ourselves. And I'm the kind of guy that having read the box, I'm looking for my cake. I'm looking for my cake. Haven't done a damn thing, but read the box. <laughs> and here I am meeting with Bob and Ken every Friday in my office reading the big book. And I'm looking for recovery. Haven't done a damn thing. And I'm looking, where's my recovery? I had to get into action. I had to do the deal. And I was encouraged to read in the big book that almost none of us like doing the deal. And quite frankly, I haven't met anybody who wanted to do the deal. But it's necessary for the process to work. I have a chronic, progressive, incurable, fatal disease. I can either do the deal or bend over and grab my ankles and kiss my ass goodbye. <laughs> because there is no door number three for alcoholics. I either have to go through life each day trying the best I can to block out the pain and suffering of my daily life till I come to the inevitable bitter end. It's called death is what they're talking about. A horrible alcoholic life followed by a horrible alcoholic death, and I don't think so. Or I can learn to live by spiritual principles. Well, I chose action on this program. And I have been given tremendous gifts in Alcoholics Anonymous. I cannot begin to tell you the number of wonderful things that have happened to me and my wife as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. It has been an incredible journey. And it, the adventure continues. The adventure continues. It was not my plan to come to West Palm Beach this weekend. Not my idea. I come here from Hagerstown to tell you the truth. Ann and I did not come here to tell lies. I go where God sends me. The big book says that we are to equip ourselves to become of maximum benefit to God and to our fellow man. 
In the ABCs, it says God could and would if he were sought. I didn't come here to be a seeker of God. I was angry at God. My dad promised me he was going to stop drinking. I thought it was an answer to prayer. The next day he drank, and I closed the door on God. Twelve years later, my dad stopped drinking. Bob knew this. He said to me, Jack, when your dad stopped drinking, how old were you? I said, I was 26. He said, how old were you? When he said he was going to stop, you'd prayed that he would stop, and he started again. I said, I was 14. He said, Jack, have you ever considered what 12 years means to infinite God, to infinite God? Good to have a sponsor. Never thought about that. He said, 12 years, Jack, to infinite God is a nanosecond. It's an infinitesimal period of time. I would say you got pretty quick service. What's your complaint? I never thought about that. What was my complaint? My complaint was that the God of my understanding was a punishing God, a wrathful and a vengeful God, a God who was keeping score and marking, marking X's and O's on a, on a clipboard. And I had so many black marks by the time I was 14 or 15 years old that I was never going to be able to come even, let alone get ahead. And Bob said, what kind of God would you like to have, Jack? And I said, I'd like to have a loving and caring and gracious God who wants only the best for me. And he said, Jack, you can have that God. But you have to take action on 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 so you can live in 10, 11, and 12. Good to have a sponsor. Really good to have a sponsor. The longer I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, the less I know. It's remarkable. When I got here, I knew it all. And it's hard to teach somebody something when they know it all. A hip, slick, cool guy like me ends up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Who? This was not what I told the guidance counselor when she asked me, what did I aspire to? <laughs> but I've been given this wonderful gift of sobriety and this wonderful way of life. I know today that I'm here because somebody prayed. A lot of somebody's prayed. My wife, our children, my mom. My mom didn't think I was alcoholic, but she sure thought I was crazy. Somebody please help my son. I'm here because somebody prayed. And if you're alcoholic like I'm alcoholic, whether you like this or not, you're here because somebody prayed. Maybe a lot of somebody's prayed. None of us get here by happenstance. We get here because of the power of prayer. Now, if you don't believe that, here's something I'm sure you'll believe. This group of people assembled here this evening have never been assembled together in the history of the world. And we will never be assembled together again, this exact group of people. And in our book, it says, there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now, right here, right now. There's somebody here this evening who was planning on staying home. Somebody who had no intentions of being here this evening, and they're here to hear something. I don't know what. 
There are people here this evening who are getting ready to go out and drink. Don't. It's not necessary to do that. We die out there. In here, we live. We are not together by happenstance. Think of all the twists and turns your life had to take to bring you to this place at this moment in time. Think of all the twists and turns that my life had to take to bring me here to be with you tonight. Most people go through their entire lives wondering if God exists. And you and I, on a daily basis, get to watch God work. And that'll do it for another episode of Sober Shares. Thank you, Jack C. And remember, I love you. Take care of yourself and others. Talk to you soon.